How we doing? Man, it's a full house in here this morning. So thankful for uh, Patty Forsyth. And if you don't know who that is, she's the lady directing traffic as the service is starting, finding seats. And she, yeah, I know, it's, she walks you up to the front, makes you sit on the front row. And so thank you, Patty, for helping us get situated this morning. We're excited about what God is doing in Solid Rock Church. And so a couple of just high-level announcements I want to make to you. First of all, um, a reminder that next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, we have what we call all-member meeting. Um, we like for this to be less of a meeting and more of just a time to get together and brag on how God, good God is. And it's a little misleading. You don't have to be a member to come be a part of it. Okay? This is a chance for us to talk about all the behind-the-scenes things going on. Um, if you're thinking about uh, making Solid Rock your home and you haven't joined yet, that's fine. We invite you. Come be a part of it. Come hear about what God is doing. You can even share um, about what God is doing in your life in that time. That's next Sunday at 4 o'clock in this room. And, uh, and if everybody showed up from all three services, it would be standing, sitting room on the floor only. Like, it would be a complete packed house. But uh, we're excited about what God is doing, and we, uh, we're going to take a little time off next Sunday afternoon just to talk about it and answer any questions you have. Uh, speaking about what God is doing behind the scenes, I want to talk for a minute about this sermon series we're in right now and why um, I believe God has placed it in our story and our journey right now as a church. So we're doing a sermon series, if you haven't been here, called Desires of the Heart. Okay, we're exploring how these desires within our heart can easily become ultimate things to us, a.k.a. idols in our lives, things we worship that we aren't even aware of, and how those things can control us and manipulate us and lead to sin and destruction in our life and our relationships. So that's a sermon series we're doing. Um, the reality is that we're learning is that all of us on some level are harboring some different type of idol. Most of us are completely unaware of what those things are. I believe this is a timely sermon series for us to go through. As we're talking about new buildings and creating more space for more people to come be a part of all the amazing things that God is doing in and through our church, I think it is timely that we as a church, before we ever think about moving into a new worship center, we're inviting more people to be a part of what, what God is doing here, that we take some time as a church to allow God to refine us and to uproot any potential idols that may be in our hearts. That when we step into that new facility, we have one one object of worship, and that is God himself, that he holds that place of ultimate in all of our lives. And I think this is God's way of, of, of refining us as a church, um, leading us into hard conversations, uh, either with ourselves or with others, um, about those things in our life that control us, that lead to sin. And so that's, that's the timing of this sermon series. Now, the first two weeks, which are behind us now, we laid groundwork. And so what we're going to do from here on out is each week we're going to come up and we're going to talk about a specific idol uh, that potentially may be an idol in our own hearts. And so my hope and my prayer, as we've prayed the last two weeks, is that God would give us a willing heart uh, to explore and to open up and to hear from him that things that maybe aren't even on your radar right now, um, that God would bring those things to mind as we open his word and he speaks to us throughout this sermon series. And that in the end, we would be a church ready to put down our idols. That God and God alone would sit on the throne of our lives as the object of our worship, our ultimate object of affection. And so that's where we are today. And today we're talking about dreams. Now I want to start here for a couple of reasons. One uh, this has been a significant part of my journey with the Lord. I'm going to share some of that with you later. Um, but number two, because for the most part, we're all Americans, and so we grew up in a culture and society that the very DNA of the ethos of American culture is dreaming. You were told in elementary school from a little boy, little girl, 
to have dreams, right, that you can be anything you want to be as an American as long as you set your mind to it and you work hard enough. And this was, this was what was ingrained in us as little kiddos. And we grew up in this culture and this society that, that preaches to us that same message even as adults. If you set your mind to it, you work hard enough, you can be anything you want to be. So we're dreamers, right? I'm not just talking about minority children. I'm talking about all of us. We're dreamers. Now, keep in mind as we talk about idols, idols most often are good things that have become ultimate things. And so we're not saying it's wrong to dream. We're not saying it's wrong to have ambitions for life, to have a vision for the future, to have dreams for yourself and your family. What we're talking about, though, is when those dreams become ultimate things, they become idols and leave in their wake destruction in our relationships, in our family, even in our own lives. So we're going to look at three different passages this morning. We're going to start in Mark chapter 8. If you want to turn to Mark chapter 8 with me. From there, we'll go to 1 John, and then we'll land in James. So we got that coming in just a few minutes. Mark chapter 8, verse 36. This is right after Jesus tells his disciples, if you're going to come after me, You've got to take up your cross, deny yourself daily, and then come after me. And then in verse 36, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I love how clear and plain Jesus here is in this statement. You don't need a commentary, right, on this verse. Jesus is saying, whatever you're chasing after in this life, career, ambition, accolades, recognition, anything in this world. He's asking the question, what profit is it actually to you if you attain those things, you attain those dreams, you you make it to the top, and yet, in the end, you forfeit your own soul. Now, Jesus created the world he's talking about. He's not saying that this world is a bad thing. What he's saying is when we make things of this world ultimate things and chase after them, even if you attain them, right? In the end, it is no profit or value to you. Two things. One, anything you attain in this world doesn't go with you, right? I mean, you can, we can bury you with your possessions, but your possessions don't resurrect from the dead. They don't go with you. Number two, no matter what your dreams are in this world, no matter what you chase after and pursue, it does not define who you are ultimately. Now, it may define who you are from the culture's perspective for this temporary life. For example, if you're ambitious in the corporate world and your goal is to be CEO and you climb that ladder, you do all the necessary educational stuff and you you work hard, you show up early, you leave late, you're always the one making sacrifices. And in the end, you make it to the top as CEO. What Jesus would say to you is, hey, bro, that's not who you are. That company could go bankrupt tomorrow. You could lose your job. That's not who you are. No matter what you attain in this life does not define who you are eternally. And the way he says it is, what profit is it? If you gain the whole world, you achieve everything you're dreaming about achieving. If in the end, you forfeit your soul. Now, in 1 John, this is where we're going to go next, chapter 2. John was a disciple of Jesus Uh, He was considered to be among the inner three. So Jesus had 12 disciples. There were three he spent a lot of time with, okay? And these guys got to spend um, some time with Jesus and see things that the others didn't get to see. John was among those three. When we read John's gospel, we know that one of the primary themes that he got from Jesus' teaching and his example was the theme of love. John writes a lot about what it means to love. And in 1 John chapter 2, 
we read these words in verse 15. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Pretty clear. He's not saying don't own things, don't have things. What is he saying? Don't love things. Don't make things in this world ultimate. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and then he lists out three things, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's talk through that for just a minute. So first of all, when John talks about the world that we live in, he's not talking about the world as it was created in Genesis 1. He's talking about the world and what happened to the world after Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and fractured the relationship between man and God and man and woman, and then therefore, right, the shadow of death was cast across humanity. He's talking about the fallen world, the world that messed up, right, the world that that made a mess of things. And what he's saying is that you and I, we live in a fallen world, a world that's pretty messed up. And so, right, don't make this world your idol. It's broken. But he goes deeper than that, doesn't he? He lists out three things here, and he starts, first of all, with the desires of the flesh. He's going to say there's three things wrong with you and I just chasing after our desires wherever they will lead us. First of all, we live in a fallen world, and we are fallen people. Now, what do we mean by fallen people? Here's what we mean. Inherently hardwired in each one of us, you and I are hardwired and bent towards rebellion, sinfulness, selfishness, making sure that we are number one, right? Whether that's in elementary school and we're in line to the water fountain, we just we want to be number one, right? Or whether that's in high school and, and you're trying, to, trying to, to get this girl's attention and get her to date you, but you know this other guy's like, like, you're never cheering him on, are you? Right? You're never like, oh, I sure hope she goes that way. What? No, I want her to go out with me. Right? And then you move into the corporate world, and it's like, yeah, you're, you're jockeying for position. You want this promotion. You want this raise, and yet you know your coworkers are applying for it. I mean, when are you ever just cheering? The, I sure hope you get the promotion. Oh, you gave it to me, I guess. Right? No, we're hardwired to think about who first? Me. So that's what it means to be fallen, right? And so what John is saying is this. Because we're fallen, we've got some obstacles in our way. The first of all, desires of the flesh. He's talking about that inerrant, hardwired part of you and I that seeks to please itself first. Not desires of the flesh. But then he mentions the second things, desires of the eyes. What is he talking about? He's talking about those external things in this world that we see and we think to ourselves, I've got to have that. I want that. If, if I can just get that, I'll be happy. I'll be recognized, whether it's a red Corvette or it's a supervisor position at work, when we see things with our eyes and we go after them, those, right, those desires of the eyes, maybe for you it's, it's a false idea of what the perfect family looks like. And so you, you see the social media version of something, right? And you see it with your eyes and you think, I want that. So we've got these inerrant desires of the flesh combined with desires of the eyes. And then here comes the kicker, the pride of life. And here's what the pride of life does in each of our own hearts. The pride of life never wants to admit it's wrong. Now, you probably don't struggle with that. I just wonder, anybody else besides me struggle with not wanting to be wrong? 
Yeah, but why? Because you struggle with the pride of life. Nobody wants to say, I failed, I messed up, I'm wrong, I did that. That's because of me, right? We always want to blame shift. That's because of her. It's because of him. And had it, had it been left up to me, this project would have, would have, would have been successful. This marriage would have happened. Uh, my children would have been obedient. If it had been up to me, if everybody did things the way I want to do, it's the pride of life. It always thinks that it has the best idea, and it never wants to admit when it fails. What John is saying is in, in you and I, in our own hearts, as we fall in love with this world, we've got all these things within us. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life that likes to throw up the smoke screen. We talked about this last week. That's that facade that you and I throw out in front of us and where we try to project this image of who we are that's not real, but we want everybody else to believe it's real. It's the Facebook version of my life, right? It's the pride of life. And I love where he, he lands here. He says... This world's passing away. The things you're falling in love with with your eyes, those things are passing away. But there's hope. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. And that sounds a lot like what Jesus said, right? What profit is it to you to gain the whole world, right, but then forfeit your soul? And John says, you want to live forever? You want to abide with God forever? You do the will of God. What's the will of God then? I'll tell you what the will of God is. Trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Make him your ultimate and spend your life making much of him. That's the will of God for your life. But wait a second, you didn't tell me what to do for a living. I know. Right? Because the scripture tells us that we'll focus on that and we make that our ultimate, then everything else will fall into place. All right? Seek first what? Your kingdom? No. You want to wreck your life? Seek your kingdom first. Seek his kingdom first, however, then everything else will be added to you according to God's will. Now, I'm just going to give you a few statistics. In 1992, um, the U.S. News and World Report produced um, a survey. This was in 1992, so this is 25 years ago. Think about this. And what they did is they interviewed people um, under this topic of the American dream. They wanted to find out where people's minds and hearts were. This was a secular survey. So they started out with people who made $25,000 a year or less because at this point in, in, in time, that was considered to be the, the breakover point of poverty. If you were at 25 or more, you were not in poverty. If you were at 25 or below, you were in poverty. And so they interviewed people who made $25,000 or less per year. And when they put the money aside and just asked them about the lifestyle they were working towards, what they wanted out of life, where they wanted to be in 20 years, what they hoped to accomplish. They took all of those aspirations and they put a price tag on it and they recognized that on average, it would take $54,000 a year to fund the dreams of those who are making $25,000 a year. So over double, okay? Now, then they went to a group of people who made $100,000 a year and asked the same questions. Describe for us what you're working towards, what are you saving for, what do you hope to accomplish in life? Where do you want to be when you retire? And here's what they discovered. Now, for those who make $100,000 a year, on average, it would require $194,000 to fund their version of the American dream. Now, two things we learned from this. One, for the average American, right, they need twice as much money to attain the thing they're chasing after, right, just mathematically. But the second thing, and I would say the most important thing that we learn is what? We're never satisfied. We are never satisfied. I had a, one of my mentors, Jay Flanagan, 
told me this one time. We were talking about career paths and what I should do for a living. He said, Jason, I'll tell you something. If, if you can show me the man who makes $30,000 a year and yet is broke, I will show you the man who, when he makes $300,000 a year, will still be broke. Because the same discontentment, right, that's driving his life, right, that, that's causing him to not be able to steward the 30000 well, is going to be there when he makes 300000 Why? Because he will never be satisfied. And that is the lure and the enticement of the American dream. There's a uh, singer-songwriter from Nashville. His name's Michael Logan. Did some co-writing with Kelly Clarkson, um, Breaking Your Own Heart, for any Kelly Clarkson fans out there. Um, he was talking about the American dream and this, this just cycle of discontentment. He calls it, this is what he says. He says, this is chronic discontentment. The proverbial itch you can't scratch. The vague hollowness you feel when you realize that for every one thing you experience or do in this world, there are a billion more you can't possibly fit into one lifetime. And he wrote this song called The Next Thing based on this. And he says, the next thing for me represents the longing for the thing you chase, the relentless restlessness of the human spirit. Listen to the words of the chorus of this song. I'm always looking for that next thing, reaching for that next thing. But once I've got it in my hands, it always turns to sand. And I'm looking for that next thing. Chronic discontentment. Relentless restlessness. This is a description of what it means to chase after dreams and to make dreams your ultimate aim in life. Now, are we saying dreams are bad things? Nope. Right? I can make an idol out of my marriage, out of my children, out of my career, out of my dreams. I can make an idol out of anything. It's, it's when we take a good thing that God created and gave to us and we turn it into an ultimate thing that it becomes destructive as an idol in our lives. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James is always a tell it like it is kind of guy. James is going to add some insight into how this works in our lives, in our hearts. James chapter 1, verse 14, he talks about this, this broken human desire and where it leads to. And in verse 14, he says this, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, James used some really helpful words here because the word desire could also be translated craving or longing. So he's not just talking about a casual wanting for something, like, hey, what do you want to eat tonight? I don't know, I was thinking a hamburger, but chicken would be fine. That's wanting. What he's talking about is craving something, longing for something. That, right, that the way we would describe it, maybe somebody who's addicted to something who just feels like they just have to have that thing. Now, apply that to your dreams. Are dreams something that just simply guide your decisions and it's a direction you're heading in life? Or is it something you're craving? Like, I can't be happy unless I have it kind of thing. Because that's what James is talking about. He says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own 
longings or cravings. Now, the word he used here, enticed and lured, is really interesting because it's actually the idea idea of putting bait on a hook and catching a fish. Right? Now, think about this from the the fish's perspective. Right? So you put a worm on a hook and you drop it in the water. The fish is thinking... Oh, gee, a free meal. I'm going to eat it, right? The fish is not thinking, I'm, gonna, I'm hoping that this leads to a frying pan, right? The fish is like, oh, my gosh, what, this worm, it's right here in front of me. I'm going to eat it, right? So what happens, though, is the fish bites the worm and finds out what? Oh, this is a bait and switch. There's a hook in there. Now I'm caught, and I can't get anywhere. This isn't going to end well. And this is what James is saying. When we just follow, follow our own desires, and we let them lure us and Tice us and bait and switch us. In the end, it leads somewhere. Look at where it leads to. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to what? Sin. Let's talk about that for a minute. We're going to talk about this multiple times throughout this series. This is why you as a Christian can't just go after sin. And what I mean by that is, right, nobody is going to succeed at not sinning by just deciding in your mind, I'm not going to sin anymore. Just, I'll, I'll prove it to you. Show of hands if you've tried to quit sinning on your own strength and failed. Okay, so just look around the room. If you're not a Christian, that's us saying, we agree with you. We're hypocrites. We, we can't do this in our own strength, right? You're, you're right. You caught us. Busted, right? We struggle. We wrestle with the desires of our flesh, even as Christians, right? So I can't in my own strength just go after sin. I've got to go after what, where sin's coming from, and that's what James is saying here. Sin doesn't just pop into your head from nowhere. It's rooted in something. It comes from somewhere. And he's saying that when you and I take our desires and we let them lure us and lie to us and bait us, here's what's going to come out of your life. It's going to produce something. It's going to give birth to sin. And that's not the end of the journey. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. Hey, this is not new news. This is where the Bible starts. Genesis chapter 2, God tells Adam, When you sin, you will what? Die. Sin gives birth to death. Now, we mean that in two different ways. We mean that eternally, right? That's what we mean by that. But as far as I can tell, nobody in this room has physically died yet. Maybe you have. You've been brought back to life. I'm just not aware of that. But for the most part, you're all still physically alive, from what I can tell, right? So, There's a second element of that, and that's the idea of dying even before you physically die. Here's here's how I would put it. The truth is that before we physically die, when we chase after whatever the idol is, it will give birth to something, sin, and sin will lead to death, and you and I will die a death a thousand times over. I'll give you some examples of what death looks like. Death in the form of relational dysfunction. Think about that. What was the first symptom of Adam and Eve's death? Relational dysfunction. They hid from God, right? Something was messed up in their relationship with God, and then they hid from who? One another. There was relational dysfunction from the first moment they sinned. Death in the form of relational dysfunction, death in the form of animosity, bitterness, anger, hatred, death in the form of depression, anxiety, nervous breakdown. Death in the form of perpetual dissatisfaction. Death in the form of lack of joy. Death in the form of lack of peace. Death in the form of lack of security. 
and insecure. Death in the form of lack of purpose. I don't know why I'm here and what, what my purpose in life is. And I would say, probably most significantly, death in the form of not knowing who you are. Thinking that you are somehow defined and identified by your dreams and what you can accomplish and where you can make it in life on your own strength. And that, that when, you, when you crash in those moments, when you falter in those moments, the reason it hurts is because why? It's death. And when we chase after idols, even though you haven't experienced physical death, you can experience death a thousand times over. This is what happens when we stake everything on our dreams. We take a good thing that maybe God has placed on our heart or a vision God has given for our lives, and we take our dreams and we make them ultimate, the primary object of our affections and the primary aim of our ambitions. When we say to ourselves, when we buy into this lie, I won't be happy unless I get that. I have not arrived unless I accomplish this. Then we've taken the bait. We've been hooked. And the hook always leads to death. I want to take a minute, if you allow me, um, just to share with you how this specific idol has played out in my life, where it came from, um, some of the destruction it's caused in my own life, um, if I could just share that with you. So um, to begin with, I, I was raised primarily by a single mom. Um, when I was five years old, my dad went to prison. And so not only was it just a struggle because we didn't have a lot and have a lot of money, mom was working, lots of jobs, that sort of thing. But I would say this, one of the primary struggles I had with my dad going to prison was when people asked me where my dad was. Um, just that, that wave of embarrassment and shame just kind of would wash over me when I was six, when I was eight, when I was 12, dad wasn't at the games. And I always had to like, yeah, either make an excuse for him or cough up the honest truth, he's in prison. And so for that reason, early on in life, probably abnormally at an early age in life, the pendulum swung in my heart, and I, from a young age, wanted to be an awesome daddy. It's strange. I mean, I can, I can remember being 10 years old dreaming about what I was going to be like as a dad. And even though the picture in my mind, you know, wasn't realistic, I knew one thing. I'm going to be a dad who stays. I know what it feels like, right, for dad to leave, and I'm going to be a dad who stays, which is not a bad thing, Right? We're supposed to do that, dads. We're supposed to stay. Even before I became a Christian, that was one of my ambitions, and it became a dream of mine. I would daydream about it, daydream about what it was going to be like when I was a dad. After I became a Christian, um, by God's grace, I was saved, and I was um, invited into a church home where there were some men who recognized that void in my life and became mentors to me. I mentioned one earlier, Jay Flanagan, the pastor, Matt Hudson. Um, these men began to speak into my life about, about what God was doing in my life and, and, and help um, kind of create this vision I had for the future. And I can remember at an early age, like 17 years old, just daydreaming about the husband I wanted to be and the dad I wanted to be. And these guys would take me with them to like marriage conferences and make me sit through the awkward sex talk. And I can remember being at Promise Keepers at like 17 with my hands in the air saying, yes, I'm gonna be a dad who stays. And I wasn't even a dad yet, right? I didn't even have a family, but I'm gonna, right? I'm gonna rock this thing. And, and so here's what happened. This, this God-given vision for how family was supposed to be became an idol to me, right? It became everything to me. I bought into the lie that I'll never be happy unless I get that. And it's part of the reason why I waited until I was like 27 before I ever got married because girls that I dated, awesome, awesome godly girls, just didn't fit the mold, right? 
After a few months, I was beginning to see their flaws, and I realized, oh, I'm not going to have a, a chance at a perfect marriage if I marry you, so you're out. Yeah. Um, the, my, my wife, Hallie, is a beautiful portrait of God's grace to me. Um, we ended our first date by me telling her, I know, some of you know where I'm going. I told her she was the most selfish person I'd ever met. That's how we ended the first date. <laughs> I know, right? I'll never forget that moment, and neither will she. Of course, here's the thing. You know, she's 20 years old. She hasn't been harboring this vision of the future, and she didn't have this idol of a dream of everything had to be perfect, right? She was just living life, right? And so what was I doing? I was trying to conform her from day one into this image that I had. The reason I told her she was the most selfish person is because she didn't want to be the, this image in my mind that I had made up. And I felt so justified. I did. I felt so justified. This is biblical stuff, Hallie, right? We're supposed to read your Bible. And I would, listen, y'all, I mean, I know it's, it's funny now, but it was hard. Hard on her because I was heaping up on her this pile of expectations. Number one, she didn't have the same idol I had, so she had no idea we were working towards. Just completely catching her off guard by, you're the most selfish person I ever met. Whoa, where did that come from? I mean, you can just say you don't want to go out with me again. You don't have to be mean, right? Now, use my words to, to be condescending to her, to talk down to her when she didn't fit the image of my idol. And listen, this carried over into marriage. Um, I'll never forget um, the first six months of marriage, we're in our our first home, and, and y'all, I'm trying to conform everything in my life to this image. I've been dreaming about this since I was a little boy. I wanted it bad. And I'll never forget the, the, the first time he, uh, we were having one of those arguments that you can't remember what it started, where it started. You guys do that? It starts so simple, and then all of a sudden you're red in the face, and you're like, quit acting like your mother. You quit acting like your father. And you're just like yelling at each other, and your gloves come off. We were having one, I mean, we're six months in, probably not even that far, and so, and, and, and this isn't the first time it happened. We were actually at bedtime, and she's over here crying. I'm like, quit crying, you big baby. Just, you know, whatever. I'm being so compassionate as a husband. And, uh, and then she throws the covers back, and she leaves the room. Like, this is a huge, like, I can vividly remember this moment. And I thought, uh-uh, there's no way. I said, where are you going? She said, I'm going into the, uh, I'm going to go sleep in the living room tonight. Whoa. See, in my vision, my idol, my dream, there was no margin for wives sleeping in the other room, right? That's what the other couples do who don't have what we have and can't do what we can do. You're just, there's no way. So what I feel the covers back, I chase her down. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm just going to go sleep in here if you won't quit arguing. I just can't take anymore. Like, no, 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 no. This isn't how it's supposed to work, right? And I started telling her how it's supposed to work, and, right? And eventually that night, we were able to allow our hearts to break to recognize what was going on and, 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 and seek each other's forgiveness. And then we came back to the bedroom. But this was just the beginning of God tearing down this idol for me. It took a long time. We were deep in our marriage before I was able to recognize and being willing to admit, you know what, I've made an idol out of the, what the Bible describes as this Christian home. And I've heaped up this burden on you. I didn't leave a margin in my vision of the family for sin and for messes and for brokenness. And when anybody messed with it, I would defend it, even if it meant I hurt the person whom I love the most. Um, this carried over into parenting. 
maybe as recent as this last year, I finally, God, through his grace, blessed us with two boys. Um, again, I dreamed about being a dad for a long, long time. It's a really sweet part of my journey with the Lord, yet as sweet and cute and loving as these little boys are, they make horrible idols. Um, last year, we went through a really hard season with one of our boys, and and he just wasn't conforming to the image of what Hallie and I both had dreamed about for our children. And, and we, had to, we had to come to a really hard moment in our marriage, in our life, in our relationship with the Lord. We said, you know what, Lord? We need to let that idol die so we can love our son. And so that process of allowing those dreams, those idols to die has been a long process in my life. Hallie and I had this conversation Friday. I let her know in advance I was going to talk about this, and we talked through it, and You see how a good thing, when it becomes an ultimate thing, can become destructive? We take a good thing and we try to conform the rest of the world to our good thing, right? We leave this wake of destruction in our path, chasing after this good thing. We've engaged in idol worship. Idol worship gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to what? Death. Every time. Now, I want to I land here today. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead us in prayer. And, you know, maybe today through the reading of God's word, um, maybe God's revealed some things to you, okay? Uh, maybe you're at a place where you're beginning to recognize some idols in your life, some things that maybe are good things, right? God's not telling you to, to get those things out of your life. He's just saying, hey, put Jesus back on the throne. And so maybe that's where you are today. Maybe today is going to be a day for you just to reset the throne of your life and say, Jesus, I'm sorry I've made this thing, this person, this idea, this dream my God. You and you alone are my God. I hope that you'll do that today. Um, Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Here's what I want to say to you. Jesus makes this so clear. When, When he was asked about the commandments and what the most important commandment was, he told us, he said, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, your soul, and your strength. What is he saying? He's saying make God your ultimate. Right? The first commandment is have no other gods before me. And so if that's you and you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know what God wants for you today is for for you to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. It can be a scary thing to let go of the things of this world, the things you've been trusting in to find purpose and meaning and value. And God would say, listen, if you'll let go of that stuff, I've got something better for you. If you'll let go of of the stuff and take hold of the hand of my son Jesus and just believe just believe. You don't have to go get a Christian wardrobe, get you some church clothes. You don't have to do all that mess. Just believe in Jesus, make him ultimate, and I'll do the rest. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, God wants to do that work in your life before you leave. Um, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer, and I'm going to ask our prayer partners um, to be at the front and the back today. And if you um, would like for somebody to, to pray with you, maybe God's brought something up that you just want to share and not sure who to share it with, they'd be honored to talk with you and pray with you. And if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus and him alone, um, my greatest hope for you is that you would go grab one of our prayer partners and let them talk to you about becoming a Christian today. Let's pray together. Worship team, if you guys will come up. Prayer partners, if you would uh, find your spot, let's pray together. Um, God, this morning I want to thank you for how clearly um, and precisely you speak when we open your word. God, thank you that the Bible is more than just a book. It's a way that you communicate with us. And I I sense this morning that across the room, God, we've all heard from you. And so now, God, what I'm asking is that you would give us the faith to respond. 
God, for those of us who are able to maybe see some things in our hearts that we didn't realize had become idols, that today will be the day of laying those things down. Today will be the day of letting go of those things. And God, re- refixing our hearts and our, and our eyes on Jesus and him alone. And, and God, for the person here who doesn't know you and doesn't know how awesome you are, that today would be the day that they would trust in Jesus. God, would you give us the faith we need to respond to your voice today? We pray this in Jesus' name.